Hello and welcome to a History of Christian Theology. I'm happy to say for the first time in at least over a year, probably since COVID, uh, with me today will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. So if you've been looking for a conversation between the uh, original three uh, conversation partners of this podcast, we have returned. Uh, this episode will be a somewhat shorter episode than our typical episodes, um, and that's because I'm basically uh, going to ask each Tom and Trevor the question that I've been asking our guests. Uh, that is, uh, what is one thing that you've changed your mind on in your lifetime? One thing that you once held as true but now think is false or vice versa? Um, so I'll explain that a little bit at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, but Tom and Trevor wanted to get back on, and we, we also had another longer conversation, which I will release uh, in a few weeks. Um, but I wanted to get this one out there and just let everyone know that they are doing both doing very well. Uh, and they were both glad to hear uh, that some of you all have been asking uh, for them to come back uh, on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, so this will be a little bit more like a throwback episode, although we won't be discussing specifically in this episode a historical text, um, which is our was our normal pattern, um, yeah, nearly, it's crazy to say, nearly two years ago. So um, I hope you enjoy this conversation between Tom and Trevor and I, um, just a little bit about things that we've uh, changed our mind on over the course of our lives. Um, we will have uh, more author interviews Interviews coming up. I will have uh, Jacob Wood, um, who wrote a book on um, nature and grace uh, and the desire for God. Uh, and I'm also going to be recording a podcast tomorrow with Drew Johnson, uh, who wrote a book called uh, Hebraic Philosophy. Um, so you'll want to check that one out. It's coming out with Cambridge University Press. It's a really fascinating argument. Um, so I got some questions for him, and I'm looking forward to talking to uh, Dr. Johnson tomorrow. Um, so uh, thanks again for listening. Please rate us, review us uh, on iTunes. It helps people find the podcast. Um, and also, if you wouldn't, you know, if you'd like to uh, just like us on Facebook, uh, you know, drop us a line if there's something you want us to talk about, or uh, if you if you have um, you know questions or something, we're happy to answer them there or on our Twitter. So it's at uh, theology. Uh, X-I-A-N, or um, we're also at facebook.com slash uh, a history of Christian theology. So uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back n next week with more uh, con with more episodes. I, I am always surprised that anyone listens. <laughs> 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 but... <laughs> I'm always glad I'm always glad to hear from people that do and I should say to both of you Tom and Trevor as you have both uh recently returned from various kinds of sojourns and departures uh from our conversation uh, I do regularly get uh messages on Twitter or Facebook that say where are Tom and Trevor uh I there's a woman who was asking me questions about uh how we understood the trinity way back when uh, like episode 40 or 50. Um, and she was talking about how, and I've had multiple people talk to me about how it's helped them sort of deepen their faith uh, and how they, you know, it, it really helps them, th you know, realize that the Trinity and these sorts of things are not just something that people just came up with out of the blue and uh, you know, and, and this sort of thing. So uh, I think our, I mean, you know, to what extent we, we, you know, we do have people listening. Uh, it looks like between 2000 and 2,500 per episode. It's a lot of people. Um, I'm, I'm always very glad that, that people do listen and people do come comment uh, and, and that for whatever reason, uh, our conversations 
and again, like I'm equally surprised, like they're going way back in the catalog. Um, I don't remember what we said five years ago, but it's, it was helpful. <laughs> yeah. And I don't remember what books we've read. I have people asking me, I mostly get messages from friends. I guess I could access our Facebook. Do you, do you check our Facebook? Yeah, well, yeah, that's what I just said. Yeah. Oh, was that Facebook? Okay, sorry. I knew yeah. you were getting messages. Facebook and Twitter, yeah. Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. Uh, I've 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 looked at them sometimes, but generally speaking, I'm I just friends who go to my church who will listen, but or or friends like from Ambrose or whatever, they'll start listening at early episodes and they'll call me and like, hey, so could you tell me more about blah blah blah? And I'm like, dude, I have no idea what you're <laughs> talking about. <laughs> <laughs> my memory has gone to pot i do not even remember the books we've read let alone what the books actually said so um well so one of the uh one of the things that i've become fascinated with about the ancient world um and a lot of i mean this is true for augustine this is true for a lot of the people that we've read uh is the idea that people are always in motion um, so in the in the sort of scientific outlook, we tend to think about the sort of neutral observer. Um, this also comes up in philosophy. Um, and, uh, you know, there's sort of this idea that like, you know, what when you do a scientific experiment, you want to absent yourself from the experiment and then you can make a decision about the truth or falsity of something based on your experiment. But you're sort of outside. Um, but the way that the ancients understood the world is everything was in motion. Um, you were in motion. The world was in motion. There isn't there isn't some neutral deliberative space. Um, you just go. Um, and so like, you know, I, I think of it like being on a highway and deciding whether or not to take the exit. Um, well, you're moving towards the exit. Are you going to take it or are you not? You have a limited amount of time and you are moving one way or another. And if you miss your exit, you just keep going because um, you can because you are moving. Um, and if you want to turn around, uh, you can do that. Uh, but you have to go the other direction, but you're always in mo motion. So one of the questions that I ask people on the podcast is what is one thing that you've changed your mind about? Um, what is one thing where you were going one direction, um, and you said, I have to turn around and go the other way. So this is, I mean, ultimately the R word conversion, this is literally what it means to convert is literally in Latin to turn the other direction. Um, it says, Hey, I've got to make an about face and I got to go back in another way. Um, and so I don't necessarily mean like, did, when did you become a Christian? Um, usually I ask this about authors when they're writing a book. Uh, but we'll, we'll start with, uh, Trevor, uh, Trevor, what is one thing that you have made an about face? So you were moving one direction as we all are. And you said, no, I got to move the other way. Uh, I thought this thing was true. Now I think it's false or I thought it was false. Now I think it's true. I got to go another way. Your decision to become a young earther, right? Trevor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. There's... There is there's too many to uh Well yeah, you're a philosopher. You love this question, I guess. Uh, but, but I don't know, so, something that sticks out in your mind, maybe it has an interesting story. You know, I mean, one of the other things I'm interested in is this idea of what makes someone change their mind. Um and so JK Smith just wrote an interesting little article about how love is what moves us rather than argumentation was what he said. Uh, and so, uh, Peter Berger used this idea of plausibility structures and what makes something plausible, um, is maybe more useful than, 
you know, arguments, but either way. So why you change it is less important here. Uh, I want to know what you changed and then maybe you say something about why you changed. Well, I guess for the, uh, to make it probably more interesting to people who are likely to listen to the history of theology podcast, uh, I'll pick a somewhat theology one. I, I was for a while trending hardcore towards pretty reformed version, like a pretty reformed Christianity that affirmed annihilation, annihilationism to, I all of a sudden just through interacting with certain things flipped to where now I, I consider myself like an Anglo Catholic who's affirms universalism. So there, there you go. That, so I went, it was very weird. I was going hardcore one way. I was like, you know, kind of person that would post the five solas on like October 31st. And to now I'm like, I don't even know if the reformation is a very good thing. So there, that's, that's one of my, uh, so that's, that's hugely abrupt. Uh, do you have, um, I mean, there are any uh, innumerable questions we could ask you about such a confession on here. Uh, do you feel like it was an argument that made you change or was it, I mean, participating in a form of liturgy and worship that was more Anglo-Catholic, uh, or, you know, is it people, people that you've been impressed with who sort of embody the spirit of Anglo-Catholicism that just was like winsome, uh, or is it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, part of it's your fault. Uh, Chad took me to an Episcopal church, uh, very famously. <laughs> and uh, were we all? Didn't we all three go? I think so. The funny thing is, I do not attend uh, an Episcopal church by any means. Yeah, anymore. you go, you go to Baptist <laughs> church, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, now, now you go to a Baptist church, and I'm on like my church's vestry now. So it's we've gone, we've totally. No, I, um, I, yeah, part of it was that, but well, we all went. My memory is we all went to a Good Friday service together. I think once. that's right. Uh, but the first time Chad took me to a Sunday service where I actually took Eucharist, I. I mean, geez, I don't know. I I don't like to use this term lightly, but I had from from in one way of defining it, I had a sort of mystical experience. I had a very ineffable experience. I'll just put it that way. I I felt a sense of when I when I first like had to kneel down in this very like humbling way and like accept this thing, and they told you know they like Chad had to explain. He's like, put your hands out, and I'm like, okay. Um, <laughs> To me, that was, um, I had, yeah, just a very like awestruck experience. It kind of reminds, the only, the closest analogy to it is like the first time I saw Crater Lake, which is like one of these natural wonders of the world, how you just stare at it and you're just like, what, how is this real? Like that, I had a very similar feeling the first time I took the Eucharist, so it was very powerful. And um, that was sort of the start of it. Uh, I can say that. The universalism bit, that's not even something I'm like, my soteriology now is sort of less, I almost less, I kind of don't care in a way. I don't know. I don't know what the truth is. I'm just more like, well, if we're all just spitballing theories, here's one. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I, that's, that's what yeah, most theologians say. I had a, I had a talk with Tom about that. That's more, um, 
Well, what you said about origin earlier actually just struck me because that came more out of this thought that God will have to like actually defeat evil and redeem the world. So it's not that there's no hell. I didn't go to full blown no hell view, but I, I kind of came to more of a temporal hell view. And uh, it, that I, that one, I actually kind of came kicking and screaming in a way because I, I find it hard to think that uh, there won't be like, I want there to be this justice. I have this sense of like, like, no, what's going to happen to like this person? Like needs to be justice for this person. That's my emotional side. But then intellectually, I have this whole thing about like, can you really say you've defeated death and evil if you have this eternal thing? I don't know. So that, that was the sort of tension that brought that up, but yeah. All right. So now it's Tom's turn. <laughs> well, Tom gets, Tom, Tom gets to ask a question if he wants to. I, I thought Tom was going to respond there. I oh, thought you were going to respond to Trevor. No. Huh? Oh, okay. Uh, uh, yeah. So we can, we can move to Tom if we want to. Yeah. I uh, appreciate it, Trevor. I know that. Yeah, yeah that's a, uh, it's uh, so it's also an, it can be an intensely personal question. Uh, so your description of the, the Eucharist and whatnot, I, I understand that this, you know, Maybe this is the only kind of a question that you could ask in America. Uh, I feel like, uh, you know, in, in Europe, people are much more squeamish when you ask them about their sort of religious convictions. Right. No, happy to answer. Tom, <laughs> you bear your soul now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, there are a million. I mean, I, like I, I mean, like you said, Chad, I think a moment ago that it is the task of the philosopher to constantly um, – what's the word put his beliefs to the test uh which it's tough man i mean being a christian and a philosopher and i don't i'm not a professional philosopher obviously but what i mean by that is having the disposition of a philosopher which means i am always wanting to know if what i believe is right and wanting to subject it to as as much scrutiny as i possibly can and wanting to take the 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 rational course in general if possible um that just does fly in the face of holding to dogmatic religious views i mean there's just no getting around it and so i've always struggled walking that tightrope of dogma and uh philosophy it, it's just a tough rope to walk and i i you know there's some views that i will i, I try to subject everything to critical kind of thinking um but i of course do that to to in a much more guarded way about some of my more cherished beliefs. And then there are ones that I'm probably that are very near and dear that I do challenge. And some of them I might even question and some I might even have changed, but I'm a little more reticent to kind of divulge those, you know, like it's because it's like when you walk the line of dogma and philosophy, it's not just your own fears of being wrong on the dogma side, but it's also, of course, you know, you're in a community and you don't want that community to think that you're, a heretic. <laughs> I mean, it's like, like Hart, I heard David Bentley Hart recently talking and he said he used to care about such things and now he does not, which seems evident. I mean, he's, I don't say that to, to castigate him, but he's, he's clearly walking lines that just generally speaking, um, you wouldn't want to walk if you were afraid of such kinds of things, I think. Um, but uh, one that I can point back to, and this is old, this happened a long time ago. So it feels like I'm almost cheating because it happened so long ago, you know, but it's kind of a <laughs> safe one for me because I'm so I, I'm so firmly convinced, not that I have the right view, but that my old view was wrong. 
uh, and uh, that is view on eschatology. Uh, I, I attend a Calvary Chapel. I've attended Calvary Chapels since I was in high school, so probably since like 1996. And anybody who knows anything about Calvary Chapels knows that they have a very dogmatic view of end times theology. And when I was 18 or 17, 17 or 18, I held their view um, very, very strictly. So it's without getting into it too much. It's I was a premillennial. I was a dispensationalist, premillennial, pre-tribulation rapture guy. Um, <laughs> it wasn't long before I stopped believing that. I mean, I was 18 when I stopped, 18 or 19, mostly because I read a little bit of the Bible because I don't know how you could, I mean, okay, I need to be careful. I have to be honest. I just don't know how, if you read scriptures about eschatology, you could continue to hold that view long. I know a lot of people hold it. I just don't see, I mean, there's some that just flatly contradicted. So the first contradiction I remember coming across was in second Thessalonians chapter, I think two or three, where it talks about how Christ cannot return until the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, which challenges that notion of a pre-tribulation rapture because the old view was you like, or that, that view is, is that the church is raptured to heaven before the man of sin, the Antichrist is revealed. And so I read that. I'm like, well, this clearly just contradicts that. So my first shift was to become a mid-tribulationist or a what people call a pre-wrath guy. Well, once that happened, the doors swung open and I just realized the whole system was, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, bankrupt. Uh, you know, and, and it all it took was for me to, I remember I walked into a bookstore here in town, Cornerstone Bookstore, and I was curious about an eschatological question. And the guy who owned the bookstore said, well, how you answer that's going to depend on your eschatology. And at the time I was still holding to that, that Calvary view. And I said, oh, I'm a pre-tribulationist. And he goes, no, 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 no. I mean, an actually interesting question about eschatology. And I said, like, what? And he goes, well, are you an amillennialist, a premillennialist or postmillennialist? And I was like... I didn't realize this was that kind of place. And I backed out of the room and thought, I can't talk to that guy anymore. He's a heretic. Um, and then I came to read up on that stuff. And basically, I just came to the conclusion that passages concerning the end of time or eschatological passages in both the Old and New Testament are horribly misinterpreted by dispensationalists. And so I've come to believe that whole system is wrong. I'm kind of agnostic on what I actually think about end times. I think many passages, like I don't know that I would call myself a preterist in the proper sense. Uh, you know, somebody who believes that eschatological passages were mostly pointing to the destruction of the Jerus the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, I, I don't know that that's true. I, I know some are. Like I certainly think Luke 21's version of the Olivet Discourse and at least half of Matthew 24's is about that. What the book of Revelation is about, I'm not really sure. But I, I'm confident that the Bible doesn't teach the eschatology that Calvary Chapel embraced. And for me, that's, I try not to even think about it much because I'm just not that interested in the subject. But it's like, I just see it as kind of an important point because so many people I know are so caught up in what I take to be really bad um, practical application of a really bad theology because they're so obsessed with those passages and whether or not the rapture is going to happen soon and 
whether or not the end of time is coming and what that means in terms of how we should deal with vaccines and masks and all that kind of stuff, which just drives me nuts, honestly. Um, and so, so it's like, that kind of stuff is, it, it ends up coming, rearing its ugly, ugly head and being actually a really practical thing you have to consider a lot. And it's tough because people just assume that I believe that because I'm a Calvary elder and was a Calvary pastor. And, you know, you, in theory, you're supposed to believe that stuff and it becomes difficult to even talk about it. But yeah, that's kind of one change. And one I don't mind talking about and one that I think was, it happened a long time ago, but it did take time. It was like a, a slow process. Are you looking for a meaningful, lifelong connection with someone who shares your beliefs? If so, then you've got to try Christian Mingle. With over 15 million Christian singles, Christian Mingle is unlike any other faith-based dating site. Their ability to help members make quality connections is what sets them apart. They have robust profiles and personalization features that help you connect with other like-minded members. Plus, their suite of communication tools helps you meet more people and make deeper connections. Finding your true love is one of life's great adventures. So discover why so many Christian singles find love at christianmingle.com slash history. That's christianmingle.com slash history. Yeah, well, and I think that's also part of what's interesting about this is, yeah, it doesn't, it, you know, many of times it doesn't feel like abrupt. It doesn't feel like you just whip a Yui and spin around. Uh, it does feel like you're taking a long turn. Uh, sure. And and it's it's sort of like one thing and one thing and one thing. And you realize you were going, you know, do no, or you know, do south. And over time, you realize you've been bending, 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 bending around. Um, and then you're like, "Oh, I'm looking at the other direction." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, also, I should say that if uh, anybody has problems, questions about universalism or dispensationalism. I typically man the uh, Facebook page and the Twitter handle, <laughs> uh, but I will defer all questions about dispensationalism to Tom and all questions about universal salvation to Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be happy to talk about them. Indeed. Indeed. Well, Chad, what about you? You got it? one you can share with us really quickly? Yeah, I got a few minutes. I so I was thinking about this as you all were talking a little bit, um, and uh, one one that's sort of trivial but sort of funny. Uh, I hated baseball uh, between what? basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically, my high school years, most of my late middle school, early high school years, I hated baseball. Uh, I sort of I don't know if this is ironic, but sort of fun, uh, sort of strangely, that was actually mostly during the home run race when. Everybody in St. Louis loved talking about Mark McGuire. I, I did go to one game. Everybody in America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was a kid in Idaho and I had a Mark McGuire poster. So <laughs> I I went to basically one game, I want to say, between about 96 and 2000. Um, and uh, it was a game where Mark McGuire did hit a home run, but we had family visiting from Oklahoma who were all big baseball fans, and I had to go. Um, wow. <laughs> I, I do refer to them as my dark years. Uh, Albert Pools <laughs> is actually <laughs> Albert Pools, Albert Pools <sighs> and leaving St. Louis for college. The co combination, like I began to watch baseball at the end of my high school career. Um, and then moving actually solid. Like I realized that 
I identified the Cardinals with home and Albert Pujols was the most amazing thing to watch. Um, so I had a reason to turn on every time and just wait for Albert Pujols to bat. So that was, uh, that's, uh, that's my return to baseball. Um, which is a big one for me. Yeah. Oh, guys, uh, those of you listening at home, I mean, <laughs> Chad's obsession with St. Louis Cardinals baseball. I mean, the guy watches almost every game. And I remember there was a period of time when Chad was staying with me for a little bit. I don't know. I don't remember how long, a few days, maybe a couple weeks. Um, and uh, he had to watch those baseball games. And I remember one night we watched the game and I said, dude, could we watch a movie afterwards? Cause I'm a movie buff. As you guys know, Chad is not a movie buff. <laughs> uh, and the game went into extra innings and this was just a regular season game. And I was like, Chad, do we really need to watch the whole game? <laughs> And he was like, I'd really like to. And it went 16 innings long. <laughs> I don't remember if uh, we tried to watch a movie after that or if it was like the next night. But I remember later, I said, okay, let's watch a movie. Chad was like, dutifully like, okay. We turned it on and about five minutes in, he said, hey, Tom, I, I can't handle this. Could we just go to bed? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, okay, dude. So I turned off the TV and. <laughs> i remember chad that you once described a baseball game as having like a liturgy and it being a near religious sort of experience and you should write a book about that i still think <laughs> <laughs> well i so what what the a more serious one that is harder to put in terms of uh like a really obvious change in like a doctrinal stance uh, but I got to go to Israel in 2010 while I was at seminary, and I was learning Hebrew. I was doing, I did a class on Jewish biblical interpretation, and I went to Israel, and I got to go to shul and got to see like the praying at the Western Wall, and I like. Also, it's kind of a running joke that people think that I look Jewish, um, and have just assumed that I was, um, and I don't like. I don't know if I could exactly say I wanted to become Jewish. I mean, part of me wanted to become Jewish. But what I realized was that they had this whole apparatus for understanding what was going on in the Torah and then in the broader Old Testament. And I said, well, why don't Christians have an apparatus? Why don't Christians have a thing that helps them know how to read. I mean, like we have commentaries, but never, nobody can agree on which commentaries. I remember being told, read these, not those. This is out in the, these were out of date. Um, and they didn't really like, they just sort of said, here's some context. Um, and so like, but they didn't have any staying power. Um, you know, Matthew, like when I got to seminary, Matthew Henry's commentary was useless. Uh, but that was maybe the first one that I knew. Uh, and so, uh, like, so my study of patristics is essentially saying there is a long and storied um, sort of tradition around how Christians understand and read the Bible. Um, and as, as a Baptist, it's, you know, we say no creed but the Bible. And like, and there's a lot about the individual conscience. Uh, but what I came to realize is that every pastor who preached in the Bible, whether they acknowledged it or not, were standing on a long history um, and what Calvin's up to, what uh, Bart, what, oh, these are reformed people, but um, you know, what other theologians, Protestant theologians 
it's not that they don't have a tradition. They all are very steeped uh, in that tradition. Um, it's it's a it's sort of a modern Baptist phenomena where we pretend it's just me and Jesus and the Bible and that's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you know, so I love patristics. I did my PhD and doctorate. Uh, you know, because I wanted to say, well, what is, what do Christians say? It's not that I, you know, uh, just assumed it wholesale or took it all in wholesale, but, but that's my, that's my big change. Cool. Um, So I love reading patristics. (laughs) Uh, All right. Um, Well, we can call this good. Thanks for listening to this week's episode and we will talk to you soon.